Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Lucky 13, Morgan Stanley buying online brokerage E-Trade for $13 billion. Correction risk, Goldman Sachs warning on stocks as more firms cite coronavirus risks. And Bloomberg Terminal, the former New York mayor gets pummeled on his Democratic debate debut. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to our first movers around the world. Great to have you with us. We're all recovering, I can tell you, from a feisty Democratic debate night in Las Vegas. But for now, at least, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Let's bring it back to Wall Street because stocks are softer pre-market, as you can see. Europe has also been gently in the red for most of the session, too. We're taking a pause, I think, after hitting record highs on both sides of the Atlantic on Wednesday and now, of course, digesting what's been a whole slew of corporate warnings related to the coronavirus outbreak. Goldman Sachs analysts are now saying that investors may be underestimating the threat to earnings and that a market correction in the short term, at least, is a real possibility. Remember, they initially played down the economic impact and we've been talking about that for a few days. Analysis on this in just a moment's time. But again, the real action coming during the Asia trading hours. The Shanghai Composite rallying almost 2% in the session after China lowered borrowing costs further. Stimulus hopes, of course, from China and around the world helped boost global sentiment on Wednesday. Indonesia also following suit. The central bank cutting base rates today for the first time in four months. Now, in terms of U.S. central bank action, however, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari said he sees the Federal Reserve holding back on rates for now, though he did say he thinks the next move will be a cut rather than a hike. An insurance rate cut, anyone? Hmm. All right, let's get to the drivers. We're betting big. The U.S. banking giant Morgan Stanley buying the online brokerage firm E-Trade in a $13 billion all-stock deal. Paula Monica has been poring over the details of this story for us. Paul, great to have you with us. That clears up some of the suggestions we were making a few weeks ago about whether or not they could stand alone in the face of consolidation in the sector. But an interesting move for Morgan Stanley, too. What do we think here? Yeah, I think this is a very fascinating move for Morgan Stanley, Julia. This really makes the company a even bigger powerhouse with average retail investors. Morgan Stanley has done an admirable job over the past decade under James Gorman of really boosting its wealth management unit. A lot of that has to do, though, with more affluent customers. When you look at the, you know, the typical Morgan Stanley client, you are you know, talking about much wealthier people. Now you add E-Trade into the mix, you get younger, you have millennial investors who are very tech savvy. And this is something that I think is a good move for the future, because I think the hope here is that these 
younger consumers that are setting up, uh, you know, trading, uh, you know, uh, uh, accounts on E-Trade will eventually become wealthier, you know, uh, people that will need more of Morgan Stanley's wealth management, uh, you know, products. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. One of the things that I read this morning on this deal, and it's seen as the crown jewel of E-Trade, but we don't often talk about it, the number of accounts that they hold with corporates that then have stock that have been given to employees that they're holding, the hope, of course, is that the value of that stock will rise. And after this deal, Morgan Stanley will have 4,000 corporate customers holding $580 billion worth of stock. That could be a lot of future rich people's money to manage in the future. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, exactly. And that is something that James Gorman Gorman touted on the conference call just a couple of minutes ago talking about this deal. He said that this is a killer business, one of the things that attracted uh, Morgan Stanley to buy E-Trade in the first place. You do wind up one. Obviously, it helps offset some of the pressure that E-Trade was facing since all of the online brokers have now gone to zero commissions. You have this business where you have potentially wealthy consumers down the road you know, managing their uh, stock holdings through E-Trade and now by virtue of this deal, eventually through Morgan Stanley. Yeah, I mean, we have to take a step back here as well and look at the broader banking sector. I think this is the biggest deal in the U.S. banking sector since, what, 2008, when many of these companies were forced to, to acquire other businesses. Um, it's also a testament to the turnaround that, that James Gorman has achieved with Morgan Stanley in shifting the business away from trading, boutique investment banking to, to your point, wealth management and smaller players here, smaller customers. Yeah, and I think it was inevitable when everyone went to zero commissions last year. We already had another big broker deal with Charles Schwab buying TD Ameritrade. Clearly, this deal, I think, forced E-Trade into looking in the mirror and saying, hey, we're going to be an independent when two of our biggest rivals are getting together, not to mention the fact that Robinhood has taken the financial world by storm as well. So Morgan Stanley, I think, being savvy here, E-Trade being opportunistic. The big question now, Julia, what does Goldman Sachs do, if anything? Goldman Sachs was another rumored possible takeover uh, candidate you know, to take over E-Trade. Now that E-Trade is out, does Goldman just try and boost Marcus, that division, even more to gain more uh, you know, average consumers? Or is there anyone left that they could go out and buy? I mean, could Goldman Sachs go after Robinhood, for example? That would be insane. I don't think a lot of people think that it'll happen. But you know, just throwing out names, there aren't that many other companies left for Goldman to acquire to get some more scale in this business. Yes, that is such a great point. You may have heard it here first. Robin Hood right now rubbing their hands together. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, to China now, where the number of new coronavirus infections appears to be dropping. The reason for that development, though, could be because Beijing has reverted to counting only lab-tested cases. Two deaths have now been reported among passengers from the Diamond Princess docked in Japan's Yokohama, the 14-day quarantine of the cruise ship lifted on Wednesday. Meanwhile, fresh warnings from the airline industry. Air France, KLM and Qantas say the outbreak could cost them hundreds of millions of dollars. Claire Sebastian joins us on this. Claire, I was looking at Qantas and what they were saying about the impact already. Their expectations, actually, is that this lifts as of April. Some bold expectations here about this easing pretty quickly. 
Yeah, both uh, Air France, KLM and Qantas basing their assumptions on the fact that, that flights to China can resume in April. April. Obviously, that is very uncertain, but these companies have to try to model this in some way. Now, Qantas saying this could cause them a $100 million hit to, to profits in the, the first half of this calendar year, the second half uh, of the fiscal year. They say, though, that is actually mitigated partly by uh, the drop in fuel prices that we've seen. We've seen commodity prices come down uh, as a result uh, of this virus and the potential for reduced demand from China. So that is potentially one mitigating factor uh, for this. But don't forget, Julia, these airlines, uh, particularly the regional ones like Qantas, are already facing headwinds. The, uh, the protests in Hong Kong have dented traffic. Uh, they saw cargo come down as a result of the U.S.-China trade war. So the timing is not great here. But certainly in the case of Qantas, they say they are going to use staff annual leave to try and protect jobs. They're going to uh, uh, bring forward maintenance on the planes that have been grounded. Their stock is actually up today uh, because they announced a share by Back. So they say they can weather this, but of course we don't know how long this is going to go on. When it comes to SARS, that cost the, the global airline industry $6 billion in terms of lost revenue, and it took nine months for traffic to come back. Analysts do say this time it could be worse. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of analysts, Goldman Sachs being one of them, did a compare and contrast with SARS initially and said actually the impact here in the medium term isn't going to be so bad. There'll be a V-shaped recovery. Those analysts coming out yesterday and saying, actually, we could see a short-term stock correction. One of the quotes from this report, the Chinese economy six times bigger now than it was then. They also say that Chinese tourism accounts for 0.4% of global GDP. The number of missing workdays in China will be roughly equivalent to the entire U.S. workforce taking an unplanned break for two months. Wow. Claire, what do we make of that? Well, this, I think, is critical, Julia, for understanding how this could play out. The world has changed almost unrecognizably since 2003. China was then about 4% of global output. It's now about 16%. And that is why Goldman Sachs in the notes say that comparisons with the SARS period may not be totally relevant. They say uh, that, that because of the growth of uh, the Chinese economy, global companies have now piled in. They're much more exposed. And this means that they believe the markets could be underestimating the overall impact of this. We've seen stock markets reaching record highs despite this, despite the warnings that we're getting from global companies. But the trigger point for this, Julia, uh, may have been Apple that we saw earlier in this week. That company, one of the, the most valuable uh, in the US, if not the world, saying that they could miss revenue estimates for this quarter because of the, the drop in demand from China. They've had to close their stores because of the impact on the supply chain. And that, Goldman Sachs says, could bring down earnings estimates overall. So I think that is crucial here. Of course, we don't know how, how long this is going to go on or how long this will play out. But the equity markets, according to Goldman, could be underestimating this. Yeah, fascinating. Claire Sebastian, great analysis. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver, and it's a blooming disaster. Billionaire and former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg was bombarded with sharp attacks in his presidential debate debut on Wednesday night in Las Vegas. I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. Walmart, we have to subsidize Walmart's workers who are on Medicaid and food stamps 
because the wealthiest family in America pays starvation wages. That's socialism for the rich. This, this is- I believe in democratic socialism okay, for no. working people, not billionaires. What a wonderful country we have. The best known socialist in the country happens to be a millionaire with three houses. What I miss here? I think we need something different than Donald Trump. I don't think you look at Donald Trump and say we need someone richer in the White House. Arlette Sines is live in Las Vegas for us. Arlette, even the jokes there from Mike Bloomberg seem to fall a little bit flat here. And he was well and truly eviscerated by Elizabeth Warren. What's the take been there of his debut performance? Well, Julia... This basically, this debate basically turned into a Michael Bloomberg pylon. Each of the candidates came out ready to pounce and had their uh, lines of criticism that they wanted to draw with Michael Bloomberg. And for the most part, Bloomberg appeared to be a, ba- a bit flat-footed uh, during this debate. You know, his advisors had said that he had been preparing for quite some time. But as he faced questions or, or criticisms about his alleged treatment of women or uh, the, his past uh, record relating to things like stop and frisk and redlining, he didn't always have uh, the most direct answer uh, to provide back to those candidates. Now, one person that emerged largely unscathed from this debate was Bernie Sanders. He's now the front runner. And these Democratic contenders decided to train their focus and train their fire on Michael Bloomberg. And they didn't really go after Bernie Sanders all that much. Now, you heard Bloomberg landed a bit of a punch uh, in that in that clip that we just played uh, when he said that he didn't know that uh, Democratic socialists were millionaires who owned three homes, referring to Bernie Sanders. That was one of the knocks against him. But you also, in addition to this Bloomberg pylon, uh, you saw a bit of a fight between Eliz- uh, between Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg uh, over experience. You could tell uh, that they uh, that Amy Klobuchar in particular was rattled a bit by Pete Buttigieg at one point. Now, this debate is all playing out as we are just two days out from the Nevada caucuses. Michael Bloomberg isn't competing here or in South Carolina, but those other Democratic contenders are hoping for a strong showing in the state, particularly Joe Biden, who really needs to get a good showing, strong finish here in order to get propel him into states like South Carolina and more diverse states on Super Tuesday. Now, this evening, CNN's going to have two presidential town halls with Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. And all of the candidates remain in the state today, except for Michael Bloomberg, as they're trying to make their pitch to Nevada voters. Yes, emphasizing the term leaving Las Vegas ASAP, I think, in this case. All it signs. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the stories making headlines around the world. More details have emerged about a deadly mass shooting in Germany. The gunman was found dead in his apartment after nine people were killed in two bars in the east of Frankfurt. Police are treating it as an act of terror. Let's bring in CNN's Melissa Bell on this story. Melissa, good to have you with us. What more do we know about the individual that carried out this attack and and what his motives perhaps were? and this has been said over and over again by German authorities, uh, a racist, xenophobic, far-right motive. There was uh, no words minced when it came uh, to, tr- to talking or to trying to deal with what might have motivated, uh, motivated the gunman to begin his attack. Uh, just behind me here in that bar, the Midnight Shisha Bar, it was at 10 p.m. Uh, last night here in the center of Hanau that he began his rampage, moving on then to another bar in all, as you said, nine people killed. Uh, and then uh, he was found after a 
uh, a manhunt in his apartment, he had also uh, murdered his mother. Now, uh, we are hearing just a little bit more uh, from authorities. The German interior minister has just visited the scene saying he was here to express uh, his sympathies and vowing that all would be done to get to the bottom of this. We've also been hearing a moment ago uh, from the German prosecutor who said that not only have uh, nine people been killed, but also uh, six people have been injured, including one uh, who is in a critical condition. But a great deal of shock in Germany uh, today. You're going to see a lot of German politicians making their way through Hanau today, including, we expect, the German president uh, later today. Angela Merkel's been speaking to it. Um, clearly, this is something that had been uh, on the radar of German authorities for some time. The, right in, the th rise in the threat presented uh, by far-right uh, people motivated by far-right um, causes, far-right motivations, and uh, this is what has happened earlier. The foreign minister said it was the third far-right attack in Germany this year. Yeah, and that's exactly what I wanted to ask you, Melissa. What have the AFD, the far-right party, said about this attack, to your point about perhaps what's inciting some of this kind of violence? Well, they came out very quickly with a statement uh, that was very clear in its condemnation of the attack and in its support of the investigation that's undergo, under, un, now underway, saying that they had full faith in the investigation, that it would get to the bottom of what went on. Very clear in its condemnation, but interestingly, Julia, the statement did not talk about a terrorist act, as so many other politicians did. It talked about a terrible act, and I think perhaps that's the slight difference with some of the other statements that you've seen here today. But they did come out very quickly and make that uh, condemnation, as did uh, all sorts of European politicians, European leaders, uh, vowing uh, their support for Germany uh, in this time. And I think what you've seen and what all of the politicians have said today is really a sense that this is a real problem in Germany today and something that they need to tackle uh, and get their hands on in order to prevent this sort of atrocity from happening again. Julia. Yeah, a terrible act versus an act of terrorism. Slight difference, but a vitally important one. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that. Now, at least two people are dead after a train derailment in Australia. It happened near a town around 50 kilometres north of Melbourne. The train was headed to Melbourne from Sydney. The cause of the derailment is not yet known. But if we get any further details, we will bring them to you. To Washington now, long-time advisor to President Trump, Roger Stone, will be sentenced in the coming hours. He was convicted on charges of obstruction, lying to Congress and witness tampering. Stone has requested no prison time. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but still to come, the end of the Emoti era. The Swiss bank UBS getting a new boss and the shipping forecast. The CEO of Denmark's Maersk talks coronavirus, trade wars and a global trade slowdown. Stay with us. We're back after this. Back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange. U.S. futures right now indicating a softer open. The S&P and the Nasdaq pulling back from record highs, as you can see. That said, I'll make the point, we're still less than 2% away from that 10,000 milestone on the Nasdaq, even as more global firms warn about the impact of the coronavirus outbreak. Now, as we were saying earlier, in mainland China, the number of confirmed coronavirus cases dropped 77% in just one day. The government briefly started counting clinically diagnosed patients, those that show symptoms, even if they tested negative, but has now reverted to lab-confirmed cases only. Meanwhile, biotech firms are racing to produce faster tests, and one called Novacite says it can get results within two hours. 
The CEO is Graham Willis, and he joins us now from their lab in Surrey, England. Graham, great to have you on the show. Just explain exactly what you have here. Do you have a test that will give a positive, even if a patient isn't showing symptoms but does have the virus? Yes, potentially uh, we have the ability to uh, test uh, a patient uh, that is in the early stages um, of infection and um, our test uh, specifically looks for the COVID-19 virus. How did you find this so quickly? Is it something else that you've adapted or did you simply start from scratch to create this test? So uh, this part of our business, which is um, all to do with molecular uh, design and manufacturing, um, we keep uh, a very close eye on what's happening uh, around uh, the world. So in the past, we uh, have been involved in supporting crises like uh, Ebola, um, such as the SARS uh, epidemic of a number of years ago. And the way we are able to do that is we keep track of... um, Uh, global databases for various infections, including uh, flu. And uh, we are then able to uh, respond very quickly uh, through our research and development process. And that's exactly what we've done with COVID-19. Yeah, what I'm trying to ascertain is whether or not this is a one-off, but as as you're pointing out, it is something that you've done for other different viruses that we've focused on in the past. Your share price saw an astronomical rise with the news that you'd had 288,000 requests for quotations. I'm assuming that's a quotation on price here and and availability. What proportion of those quotations have you already transferred to orders? And can you give us any sense of of actual demand here? Um, So... First of all, I would say it's very, very early days still in, in uh, this particular situation. Um, I mean, in the past, the SARS uh, epidemic actually lasted for around nine months. Um, so, um, first of all, I would, you know, have to say that it's very early in um, our delivery of product to support, you know, countries' um, prices. Uh, To date, around 50% of our quotations have already been converted into orders, and that's something that obviously is changing almost on a daily basis. How soon, to your point then, can you deliver these tests, and can you fulfil 140,000 orders approximately if if 50% right now have converted? How long is that going to take you? Actually, uh, from a stock point of view, we are able to fulfil all of the existing demand that we we see in front of us today. Uh, Obviously, we are in uh, multiple discussions with uh, many different countries and um, looking at, you know, generating a forecast which would then enable us to continue to manufacture, assuming that the demand, you know, continues to grow and uh, develop further. So at the moment, manufacturing capacity is not an issue for us. Interesting. I mean, what we were just describing there in China is difficulty with how they're simply counting cases and the numbering here. How quickly, given your operations in China too and your connections there, could China be using your tests? Can you give us a, a sense? 
So the key barrier there is to um, make sure that the product is accepted uh, by the Chinese FDA authorities. Um, and just like the US uh, FDA, there is a fast track uh, mechanism. And we are in discussion with multiple parties about taking our new CE mark uh, product through the CFDA process. Typically, you know, that will take um, uh, a week or so to get through um, uh, because, you know, the, the, the Chinese authorities are quite desperate, as I understand it, for, uh, for tests to, uh, to support their problem. Fantastic work. Graham, come back and talk to us soon, please. We'd love to hear how it's going. Graham Willis there, the CEO of Novasight. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ray. Right, we're counting down to the market open this morning. A softer open expected for US markets. That's the picture. Stay with us. Plenty more to come. You're with First Move. And the opening bell being rung by Battalion Oil Corporation there, as expected. We've got a lower open here on Wall Street, though a blockbuster M&A deal is what we're focusing on in the financial sector. Morgan Stanley buying discount broker E-Trade for some $13 billion. So that creating some excitement in the financial sector. But it is the whole slew of corporate warnings related to the coronavirus outbreak that I think investors are cautiously pouring over today. And that's something that is foremost on investors' minds right now, including, of course, that warning of a potential short-term pullback from Goldman Sachs out last night too. Meanwhile, shares of Maersk are lower in Denmark. This after the company reported a disappointing fourth quarter set of results, posting a net loss of $72 million down from a profit of $46 million in the same period a year ago. The Danish shipping giant also one of those warning that the coronavirus outbreak is expected to hit its earnings this year. I spoke to the company's CEO earlier this morning. Uh, typically, there's quite a run-up in, in cargo volumes being shipped up to the Chinese New Year, which was beginning on, at the, on the 27th of January. And then after, after Chinese New Year, there's a kind of a, a, a period of lull where we normally make quite a number of cancellations. Uh, this year, we have cancelled more than 50 sailings, more than we would otherwise have done because of the, the coronavirus. So, so the impact uh, right now is, is quite substantial. We have around 30% of our business is, is really related to, to China. So, so it's, it's, it's significant. But what will be really important is what happens uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. What, what percentage of the total shipping volume then is those 50 cancellations? Can you just give us a sense of, of how material that is? Uh, it's the 20th of February today and I think it's, it's re really impossible to tell uh, how, the, how, the, how this will play out. Uh, you know, we're still relatively close to uh, Chinese, Chinese New Year. We would have expected seasonal weakness to begin with. So, so, so I think we need uh, to get you know, two, three weeks further down the road before we can really quantify the impact of the coronavirus on global shipping volumes. But in terms of getting back to capacity, just to go back to your earlier point, you suggested a sort of four-week time horizon. Is that what it takes simply to get things going again once China's back working and the, the manufacturing sector in particular is, um, is up and running again? 
Yeah, so so we, we, we expect this week, as we speak here today, that the manufacturing capacity across, across China is back up at 50 or 60 percent. Uh, and uh, as, as workers return in the coming week from the quarantine that they have been imposed on, on them, uh, you know, usually when, when workers return to their cities, they, they, they have to stay at home for two weeks before they can start work. Uh, and and that will, people will be coming back to work in the next week and a half. And that's why we say by the 2nd of March, we expect factories to be at 90 percent uh, across China, with the 10 percent missing really being the, uh, the factories in the Hubei province uh, where the is, uh, outbreak is the strongest. What adjustments will you have to make, at least in the short term, if this is optimistic and your judgment here is optimistic and actually there's, there's greater delays? Because there is still a great deal of uncertainty and confusion, really, about how quickly they can reduce the quarantine efforts, in particular in, in China. What adjustments will you make and have to make? So obviously we have plenty of risk still, uh, the risk of new outbreaks uh, as uh, migrant work workers uh, start to travel around, not just in China, but, but in, the, in the world. Uh, so we mm. can definitely not say today exactly how this is going to uh, pan out. Obviously, if new outbreaks outside China or in other parts of uh, uh, China were to occur, then, uh, then we will be on a path where the coronavirus will have more of a long-lasting effect on the global uh, economy and on global uh, supply chains. What we can do is, is really to, to adjust the capacity that we offer to the, to the market in order to save cost. Yeah, it's a tough one. The other challenge, of course, has been a reduction in global trade anyway, the impact of tariffs, particularly between the United States and China. We got a phase one trade deal and there was then hopes that perhaps that situation would stabilize. What are your thoughts as far as that is concerned? And did you see any pickup as a result of the, the phase one trade deal or the seeming agreement on that? Or was it too early to tell? Well, we... we uh we, we in 2019 we actually were able to to grow our earnings by about 14 percent on on quite weak global global trade and and we also have ambitions uh, uh, to continue to have uh, reasonable earnings uh, the, the, this year also in an environment where global trade is not growing uh, as as much we saw the phase one deal being made uh, last year that was helpful. It's probably unlikely that we will see a phase two deal uh, mm. uh, this year. But, but there are other areas of the world where trade deals, new trade deals are being made that actually liberalize trade, for instance, between EU and Japan and, 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 and so on. So all in all, we, our estimate is that we will see a global demand growth, global trade growth of in the order of one to three uh, percent this year. And that's even with the impact of coronavirus, or are you separating that out from your prediction at this stage? Well, we believe that at least the, the impact of the coronavirus can be contra contained within that band of 1% to 3% global growth right now. The Musk CEO there. All right, let's move on. Change at the top. UBS, the Swiss bank, has got a new CEO. He's Ralph Hammers, who's the current chief executive at the Dutch lender ING. It comes as Switzerland's other top bank, of course. Credit Suisse is also seeing leadership change. Anna Stewart joins us on this story. I'm a little bit surprised by the timing here and how swiftly actually the UBS CEO is moving out. But I'm more surprised by the bold choice here of Mr. Hammers. What does that say about the direction now for UBS? <laughs> 
Yes, it did make me laugh, Julia, because earlier this week we were discussing HSBC, which has had an interim CEO for six months and could do for another six months. We only found out that Amati was stepping down last week, so it feels very, very fast. Swiss Bank, of course, it's probably had succession planning in the works for many, many months, possibly even years. Such an interesting choice because UBS is all about wealth management and Ralph Hammers isn't. He doesn't have much experience there. ING is all about retail, commercial banking. However, I guess what we could say is he's seen ING through a very successful transition out of the financial crisis. Uh, Lots of cost cutting, lots of... um, I don't know, due diligence and seeing it through a digital transformation as well. So perhaps that is why we're seeing the chairman saying he's the right CEO to lead this business into the next chapter. UBS needs a lift. It missed its financial targets last year. Its investment bank is struggling. So perhaps it's just fresh blood at the top. And they'll take up that role in November, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing I'd say about Mr. Hammers, he's not afraid to be punchy. He's smacked around the European Central Bank on negative rates. He's not afraid to weigh in on bonus caps, too. And speaking of bonus caps... (laughs) Speaking of bonus caps, his ship is coming in, Julia, because Dutch law is very strict on bonuses. They are capped at 20% of salary versus uh, the EU, which is 100% cap or 200% with shareholder approval. To put that into context, in 2018, Hammers actually earned less than $2 million. Don't feel too sorry for him, of course, but um, compared to Amotti, he went over $14 million. So he's about to get a huge pay bump. Yes, lucky him job to do at UBS though as well but I do want to pick up on a point that you just made very quickly HSBC without a leader leadership change at Credit mm-hmm. Suisse UBS now shifting there's a leadership gap not only with those companies but elsewhere with Sokgen another one challenges yeah, at the top like th- for the European banking sector Yes, it's all change at the top. It's really interesting, isn't it? HSBC, SockGen, ING now joining that too, and they may struggle with that bonus cap. Uh, speaking to analysts, it's an interesting idea. Perhaps we're moving away from the era of financial crisis, the CEOs that saw those banks through that bumpy area, and now it's the search for growth. They need a change in strategy and also, like HSBC, a lot of restructuring. Julia? Anna Stewart, great job as always. Thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But still ahead, Mark Zuckerberg faces a cookie apocalypse. I'll speak to the analyst that cut Facebook to a sell. He says fewer online cookies could hit Facebook's business model pretty hard. We'll explain next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move with a look at our global movers. Shares of discount brokerage E-Trade rallying over 24%. Morgan Stanley buying the firm in a $13 billion deal. Morgan Stanley shares are down around 4% on the news, as you would expect for an acquiring firm in this case. Media giant Viacom CBS falling some 13% after reporting weaker results. It's the company's first earnings since the merger of Viacom and CBS late last year. Take a look at uh, shares of L Brand. They're also under a bit of pressure here. They're selling a controlling stake in Victoria's Secret Unit to a private equity firm for around $500 million. It seems investors may have hoped for a higher price here. Yeah, down around 3.5% so far. Victoria's Secret going private. Facebook, as you can see, a little changed in early trading today, but shares of the social media giant have recently lagged other big fang names. They're up around 5% year-to-date. Pivotal Research Group recently downgraded the company to sell. They say investors are underestimating the challenges to Facebook's advertising model. 
Michael Levine joins us now. He's Senior Research Analyst at Pivotal. Great to have you with us. My pleasure, Julia. Cookie apocalypse. We yeah. have to explain what this is and what's going on with Google's Chrome 80 update because it's making significant changes that you argue impacts Facebook more than anyone else. Explain what's changed and then we can talk about what's happening. So when you think about the way Facebook is able to target users, they have a combination of first party data so they actually you register you're on the site you're looking at pictures of your friends your messaging but what they're also doing is they're looking at your behavior around the web they even had come out with their privacy tool recently and you can actually do this and it'll show the 600 different sites that you've gone ahead and visit <laughs> and they're taking in the way I would describe their behavioral targeting it's like it's this mash of first party data and third party data you said they're on the efficient frontier they collect yeah. most data they've got cross platform they can build a huge profile of who you are as yeah. a buyer and then target you incredibly efficiently in order to provide you with images of what you might want to buy. Exactly. It works. It works. They, this was the promise. I mean, I, I worked in the advertising business before moving to Wall Street, and I remember this is what we would tell clients, like, behavioral targeting, we're going to get the right message in front of the right user at the right time. And I'm sure you've noticed, Julia, in the last five, six years, it's just gotten better. Like, because these companies are doing a better job looking at your behavior around the web, looking at your profile to do that. Totally. I get chased by pairs of shoes that I've looked at all the time, I have to tell you. So very, very concerning. Um, so talk to me about the changes. Google yeah. Chrome, Apple as well. Why suddenly are you worried about an impact to their behavioral targeting here of, of customers? Well, I think we underestimated as did the street what they were actually already seeing disruption-wise out of Apple. And I think that that happened around the, the back half of Q4. We saw it in some of our data that showed a downtick in December. We had thought when the companies talked about negative impacts, there's the things they need to change because of GDPR, CCPA. Exactly. Yes. But the biggest one that's concerned us has been the things that are out of their control, specifically, as you're mentioning, Apple and Google. So we had thought that they didn't know when Google was going to make the announcement of the exact release date. Apple comes out. You're already seeing them lose some signal with regards to location-based data. From way more people are holding up their yes. hands and saying, like, no, I'm not interested in sharing with you exactly where I am. So more and more restrictions on the use of data exactly. is reducing the impact of their behavioral targeting. And because they are so good at it, yes. it has a more negative impact on Facebook, perhaps, than some of the others. Google, Alphabet, for example, that also Correct. well and truly targets advertisers, and that is their business model. It's, I call it the winners. For market leaders, sometimes you have the winner's curse, right? Yeah. You're like, you're so you're good at most. what you do, like you're doing everything you can. I'd give another an, you know, analogy would be booking.com, you know, formerly Priceline, when desktop started to move towards mobile. I mean, they were the best company on the planet, advertising with Google, and then all of a sudden, you just could not grow queries. Like, How much pushback are you getting on this call? Because if I look at other analysts out there, you know, they're not listening, because Facebook, to their credit, are saying, guys, we're going to see a slowing in the numbers. We are seeing an impact. Yeah. But the street seems to be going, um, yeah, they're just managing expectations. It's going to be okay. I think it's a little bit of pattern recognition of people saying they're just sandbagging. This is what they've always done, which I think they probably are doing on the cost side. I just tend to take them a little bit more at their word with regards to revenue. So the pushback I've gotten has been mostly from holders of the stock. But 
pivotal just in terms of our legacy. We have a lot of industry relationships. So our nodes go out to three or 4,000 folks in industry. I've gotten almost no pushback. Like what I've, the only things that I've heard has basically been, look, it will hurt more of the rest of the web than it will the walled gardens. Stock is cheap. And like one of the big pieces of feedback that would probably change my mind is they have to get payments right. Like this is the important part, Julia, about the signal that they lose. They still have the first party data. They're seeing everything you're doing on the site. But aside from responding, let's say, to a different shoe ad and thinking, OK, maybe Julia's interested in shoes, they really need the purchase intent that comes from the, the rest of the web. How long is it going to take them to, to get that set up? I mean, they have the user base, two billion daily active users. They have the infrastructure in place to be able to provide that payment system. Yeah. How long does it take for them to, uh, to get it organized? I really don't get it. I mean, we were a lot more positive. It seemed like there was a lot of regulatory potential hurdles around Libra, which seems like it's dead on arrival. Yeah. They've got David Marcus out of PayPal, who's by far one of the sharpest payment executives out in the Valley. And like everybody's like, why is this not happened? Why is this not come? I mean, I think they were shocked by the excitement around it. They hadn't even got started when they announced yeah. it. They should have done a bit more work first, but that's just my view. And <laughs> it's a sensitive subject with me. Um, your price target here for Facebook, $180. You say better to buy Amazon or Alphabet. We have to wrap up this conversation, but we will get you back because we'll talk about those names too. Great Perfect. to get your analysis. My pleasure, Julia. Michael Levine, Senior Analyst at Pivotal Research Group. Thank you once again. All right, up next on First Move, the highly disputed sentencing of Roger Stone President Trump's longtime friend and advisor will be announced in just a few moments. We'll analyze what to expect after this. Welcome back to First Move. Roger Stone, longtime advisor to President Trump, is due to be sentenced shortly on charges of obstruction, lying to Congress, and witness tampering. The case has become a test of judicial independence, among other things. The U.S. president has attacked prosecutors, jurors and the judge in this case. Sarah Murray joins us now. Yeah, who'd want to be this judge, Sarah? What are we expecting to come from this ruling and this announcement today on sentencing? This is going to start any minute now, and really it's the judge's turn to weigh in on what punishment she thinks Roger Stone deserves for the seven crimes he was convicted of. They include obstruction, lying to Congress, as well as witness tampering. Now, Stone's attorneys have said he should not get any jail time, and prosecutors additionally told the judge that Stone should serve seven to nine years behind bars. Behind bars. And then we had this extraordinary thing play out where the attorney general decided to insert himself in the case. He decided that sentencing guideline was excessive. Uh, he he overruled the prosecutors on this case and asked the judge to soften um, the, the time she might give Roger Stone. And that prompted the four prosecutors who had been shepherding this case across the finish line to resign. So there are actually going to be new prosecutors from the Justice Department who are in court today to handle the sentencing. And, you know, we will see what kind of punishment the judge decides to hand down. And then obviously we'll see how President Trump reacts to it. As you pointed out, he has also weighed in on this case, essentially attacking everyone involved and defending his longtime friend, Roger Stone, saying Stone has been treated unfairly. And Trump has continued to tweet about this case overnight. So we're all waiting to see if he's going to weigh in at some point and potentially pardon his friend. Yeah, and that's the key, Sarah. And I just want to explain that for an international audience. You, you've called him President Trump's friend here. For many people, they'll be like, why? Why is President Trump tweeting that uh, a sentence of several years is too long? Who is Roger Stone and why is he so important to President Trump? 
Roger Stone and Donald Trump have been friends for more than 40, roughly 40 years. They've had some periods in their relationship that were rockier where they barely spoke. But for the most part, they've been friendly. And Stone has been sort of a longtime political advisor to Trump. He was one of the people who was in Donald Trump's ears for decades, telling him that he should run for president. He was a senior advisor to Trump's campaign when it first got started. And he continued even after he either quit or was fired from the campaign. It depends on who you ask. He continued to stay in touch with Donald Trump, who was a presidential candidate, to give him advice throughout the campaign. And one of the points that prosecutors made when this case was at trial, you know, they said that the reason Roger Stone lied was because he was trying to protect his friend, Donald Trump. He was trying to protect Donald Trump, the candidate, and Donald Trump's presidential campaign. So it's really extraordinary when you think about the idea that Donald Trump could pardon his longtime friend and political strategist who prosecutors say lied in part to protect Donald Trump. Sarah Mari, great to have you with us. Thank you for that explanation there. And we'll wait to see what that sentencing provides in the coming minutes. All right, let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief. Tesla CEO Elon Musk skipped the chocolates this Valentine's Day and bought $10 million worth of Tesla shares instead. A filing with the market regulators reveals he raised his company stake to 18.5%. Tesla stock has doubled in price since the start of the year, and of course, he may have bought chocolate too. The US casino operator MGM Resorts says it was hacked last year. Tech website ZDNet reported that the details of over 10 million guests have been compromised. MGM says no financial data or passwords were stolen. Now, take a look at this if you dare. Fast food giant Burger King is remolding the image of its signature burger. The company's new ad aims to promote a preservative-free burger by showing how it decomposes. Yes, remolding, you see? Yum. The whole natural Whopper will be available in all Burger King restaurants in the United States by the end of the year. Yep. Yep. Not sure how I feel about that. Not sure I'll ever eat a Whopper ever again. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. I'm off for a salad. <laughs> when you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.